You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. Uh, today, I'm sitting down with a friend of mine and fellow quality nerd and analytical scientist, Ellen Parkin. Ellen, thanks so much for being willing to sit down with me today. Yeah, I'm very excited about this. This would be great. Yeah, totally. Uh, so for some of you that might not know Ellen, um, Ellen's been working for the past, I don't know how many years now, working in the cannabis testing space, like five years or four years or so? It is just over four now. Yeah. And um, we have somewhat similar experiences in the cannabis testing fields in that we've done a little bit of everything as far as we've been the the analytical technicians, the analysts, the quality director. <laughs> we've done every every piece of it. Um, so we have a lot in common in that regard. Yes, we've um, worn many, many hats. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Ellen, do you mind, um, just to get us started here, kind of describe a little bit about your background and um, kind of how you came to work in the cannabis testing space specifically, and then where some of your work has kind of focused um, as of lately. Yeah, of course. Um, I actually first started out um, in the beer industry. I have my master's degree in brewing science, and I was doing a lot of work on hop chemistry and um, started working in the beer industry. Um, and just some life changes um, had me turn towards cannabis. I found myself working uh, as a lab technician in a little startup laboratory here in Bend, Oregon. And uh, ever since, it's been a great uh, change in my career. Um, there's so much more opportunity for um, research and uh, career development and growth and the industry is just so fascinating and so new that uh, I think it's been really great. Um, just as a part of my career, um, I was kind of looking for what I wanted to do. Um, and as I worked my way up from being a lab tech uh, and then doing more quality work and then into a bigger space of uh, laboratory director and quality assurance officer, I kind of found my niche. I'm really enjoy doing all of the quality specialist work and um, kind of helping people understand the regulations and helping mm -hmm. people understand what cannabis is and what cannabis can do for people. Um, and so that's kind of been a really big part for me as well as just trying to, to be a part of the community as well. The, the industry that I came from before the beer industry had a lot of connections and a lot of um, community-oriented events. And with cannabis, that wasn't as prevalent. And so with the nonprofit that, profit that I work with, Cascade Cannabis Association, um, we do a lot of work to just bring everybody together, um, both for like social events, like we recently had uh, an event where uh, several local breweries donated beer. We all got together. There were food trucks. It was super fun. Nice. Uh, and then like next month, we're going to be having like an educational event. So things like that, um, I think have really been, um, been great for, for this space. Yeah. And so are you doing, um, some like educational work through that nonprofit? 
Yeah, yeah. So um, we try to do at least one educational event each year. Um, just trying to get people are more interested in the social aspect right now. But I think as mm -hmm. uh, people who are not growers or producers get involved in the cannabis space, um, they're going to want to know more about like, what is this plant? What do what are cannabinoids? What is it mm -hmm. to have to test for 59 pesticides? What are these things? Um, so in our attempts to do educational things, um, we try to have like one big event a year and do, um, it's kind of like TED Talks to get different people. Mm, yeah. And we kind of talk about a similar subject um, and try to get people involved in that and uh, get people talking about it. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, trying to spark good conversations and drive uh, the sort of consciousness of the industry a little further. That sounds great. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and in some, and I know we're sort of taking a tangent away from the cannabis testing stuff, but I'm, as an educator, also really interested in this too. Um, in some of the educational work that you're doing now, you said right now it's primarily a lot of um, like industry folks that are involved. So do they have, what sort of questions are they kind of wanting answers to um, that you're kind of getting confronted with? A lot of it is about the regulatory space and like what's allowed mm, what's yeah. as well as like, why do we have this regulation? Could we change it? And so mm, yeah. there's a political aspect to it right now. Um, and I think uh, with with hemp coming into play as much as it has in the past mm -hmm. year, um, I think a lot of people are going to be a lot more interested in um, understanding these minor cannabinoids that we're seeing mm -hmm. uh, and how they interact with the body and how they can help people. Um, as well as, um, you know, a lot of people are still just really interested in like, how do I get into the industry? And so I hear a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, we're taking, with this next educational event, we're kind of taking a deep dive and uh, talking about genetics. So, oh, wow. Uh, we'll it should be really great. We're going to have a panel. We're going to have a couple of Oh, cool. Um, and yeah, actually, one of the people that I'm most excited about is actually a uh, lawyer here in town, and she's going to talk about uh, intellectual property and genetics and how those interact. So that should be oh, very cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's something that's been on my mind a lot lately, especially with all the controversy around phylos and all the different stuff that's been going on. There's a lot of people have hit me with questions about that. And that's not just a realm of things I just don't know much about as far as what you can patent, what you can't, what the implications are for sharing genetics, you know, all this sort of stuff. I'm like, I, that's beyond me. Yeah, this is going to be interesting to see how all of this plays out, because I think people are going to try to patent certain genetic strains. And then it's like, how do you as number one, a state governing body kind of keep that in check? And then number mm -hmm. two, like as the person who has that patent or a person who wants those genetics, how do you interact in that space without being like, these are mine, you can't have them. Uh, and I think right. it's, it's going to get a little wild, I think. Um, mm -hmm. It's, I don't know how to say it, but it's going to be uh, very different. And especially with like how everything else with the cannabis industry has kind of come about, it's like, it's a lot of trial and error of like, right, right. Like, let's see if they work. 
And if they don't, then let's scale it back and figure out what's the next step. So uh, there's going to be a lot of that. Uh, I just hope that, you know, people don't get hurt. People don't, you know, squander yeah. kind of things. Yeah, exactly. Everyone should have a healthy amount of um, caution at this stage of the industry. It's so well, turbulent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's uh, transition into the, the cannabis testing stuff. One of the main things, I mean, I want to talk about cannabis testing broadly and quality management and all that, but one reason why I wanted to talk to you specifically is because you've spent a lot of your time focusing on tackling cannabis-infused products, because that's kind of a um, it's almost an eyesore of the cannabis testing industry because everyone knows that there's there's some wonky things going on when it comes to testing infused products and results can be everywhere and that can be on the side of the producer and it can also be on the side of the lab if the lab doesn't know how to you know deal with different products so um, that's something I really really want to make sure we spend a lot of time talking about and kind of tease out some of the wisdom you've gleaned from working with all these different products and I guess to to start it out, for some of our listeners that are um, kind of distant from all of this, what are some of the types of products that you see come through the lab, and what are some of the most um, notable and challenging, and maybe even some of the like funnier products that you've seen come through that you've had to test? And then we can start to get into talking about some of the why those things are complicated to test and all of that. Certainly. Well, we've definitely seen some crazy things. Um, <laughs> let's see. Some of the most interesting things that I've seen, I would say, uh, let's see. Do you remember that beef jerky that we saw? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was, there was like trail mix, which was super hard to test because, like, I mean, each nut is a different size. So that was hard. Yeah. Um, ice cream is kind of a cool Ice one. cream. Oh. Um. I don't know how well that sells, but uh, it was thankfully it's like it's a pretty homogenous product. However, it's difficult to work with because then you're like working with it on the bench and it's melting. All right, yeah. That's the whole thing. Um, I'm trying to think of some other interesting things we've seen. Obviously, there's like the CBD beer craze. We've seen some. Oh yeah. Brew. A lot of home brewers bringing stuff in. Which I interesting. Uh, huh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I guess it was a matter of time. Yeah. And of course, there's always like uh, the different candies and different things that people want to try to test. I think edibles at this point has really started to focus more on like um, candies and granola bark mm. and like things that people can um, easily consume and not be like worried about too much. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I don't know, let's take in, like the beef jerky example or the um, like the, the trail mix. Um, can you illustrate, uh, particularly for anyone listening that just really doesn't know much about testing at all, um, what are some of the issues that you run into as, as an analyst when you're presented with a sample like that and you've got to figure out how to determine how many cannabinoids are in it? What are, what are some of the challenges to that that you encounter? Yeah, uh, I mean, first, just looking at the product, um, a lot of times you have to think about, okay, is this homogenous already, or do we need to homogenize it, and how do we do that without losing a significant amount of cannabinoids? Um, for instance, with the trail mix, you know, each nut is going to be a different size, and then um, 
you know, within the pecans, there's going to be more product like in the little ridges where on the almond, it's going to just coat it. Um, mm -hmm. So then if it's a mixed nut kind of a thing, that's an issue uh, for the beef jerky. You know, each piece of beef jerky is a different size. And if it was just sprayed with concentrate or some kind of emulsion, mm -hmm. that's, uh, maybe it stuck, maybe it didn't. And now there are different sizes. And how do you determine a serving size from that? Um, that's, that's difficult from both a lab perspective and a consumer perspective. Um, but overall, I mean, thinking about going into this industry and um, testing an infused product, there, before we all started and before all of this, uh, all the regs got going, there were no established methods for testing. All these labs, you know, started by just trying out how best they thought they could handle this stuff. Um, and so that's been really hard because that firstly puts the labs at a disadvantage just because they're like, okay, how do we handle this and right. how to test it correctly and give, give my client, you know, the answer that they're looking for, but also feel that that answer is actually representative of that sample. And then it's hard because the other labs might be testing it differently. So that, right. that's an issue because um, that can put each lab at a disadvantage, especially if people are um, price shopping uh, from mm -hmm. lab to lab or test shopping even. Um, another part is just like, there's no single way to extract an infused product. Like right. yeah. a gummy is different than a hard candy is different than uh, a lotion um, mm -hmm. is different than an ice cream. You know, there's yeah. all things going on. And so each lab has to figure out what the best method to extract the cannabinoids from each of the products. And each product is going to have a different amount of like sugar, fats, and proteins that are going to mm -hmm. interact with those cannabinoids differently and hold on to them differently. So that is a, a issue. Um, and then um, from the producer's perspective, it's a question of um, is their product variable because they didn't mix it properly or is it because the lab does not know how to test this product yet? Um, and anytime our lab actually gets anything new that we haven't seen or haven't seen in a while, um, mm -hmm. I always ask the front of house team to to bring it to one of us uh, and we kind of have a little team meeting and say, okay, is this like anything we've tested before? Do we have any extra products that we can do any R&D testing so that we can kind of validate some of the methodology yeah. before we actually use it? Right. I mean, in a perfect world, you'd be able to do full validations for every single sample to every type of matrix, every type, different type of product that comes to you. But you've got dozens, if not really like hundreds of different <clears throat> product product types um so well, it becomes very impractical <laughs> right and you've got someone there that w needs results like within a few days and doesn't have time to wait for you know a few weeks for you to do super thorough validations on a single product type that maybe you won't even ever see again from any other <laughs> client right, right oh god i would love to do that uh, <laughs> yeah very very impractical and what are some of the 
limitations as far as technology goes. Like, you know, if you're using a like an HPLC or a GC to analyze something, what do you have to do to that sample to get it ready for that instrument? Because you can't just. I think there's a there's there's an assumption sometimes by a lot of people that all you do is dissolve a sample and then inject a liquid into a machine and it just tells you what's in it. Um, but it, it's very far from the truth. <laughs> yeah. I love to give lab tours because I'm like, it doesn't just, we don't just put it in the instrument and it does a thing. Right. <laughs> There's actually a process to this. Um, yeah. Uh, there are definitely limitations, especially for those kinds of samples uh, that are infused and have a very small amount of cannabinoid mm. per gram of sample. Um, so that's yeah. just kind of interesting because, um, you know, for all these beverages that we're seeing, a 12 ounce bottle having three milligrams of THC mm -hmm. in it, <laughs> that is so small. That's uh, point, about 0 0.03 milligrams per gram of THC. That's yeah. so, and so, you know, we try really hard to, um, change our dilution so that the amount of cannabinoids that we can see on the HDLC is a large enough signal to noise um, so that you can actually quantify it outside of the noise that your instrument is normally seeing. Um, yeah. And, you know, we have two different types of HDLC effects here at our lab. And um, one is a UHDLC, so an ultra high performance photography. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other one is just a normal HDLC. Um, and both should be adequate for testing cannabinoids because in cannabis, you're always seeing cannabinoids at certain levels. Um, right. So you don't need to see like super itty bitty tiny amounts. However, um, with these infused products at such low levels, it's kind of nice to have the UHLC to be yeah. able to do that because you don't have as much signal to noise, which could then like mess with how you're able to see those peaks and quantify them, but then mm -hmm. um, you're able to see like a lower level. Uh, when we right. took just the normal HDLC, we actually had to change um, our LOQ. Uh, it bumped up yeah. because of the signal to noise. It wasn't um, it wasn't acceptable anymore. So we changed that. Yeah. It hasn't it hasn't really changed how how we're reporting results or anything like that. But you know. Uh, each instrument is going to be different. Um, so that definitely limits how you can do certain things. Um, mm -hmm. One other limitation with instrumentation is um, for those things like CBD isolates and stuff like that, it's, yeah. it's hard to quantify those on an HDLC mm -hmm. that's not with a method and an instrument that's not meant to um, calculate purity. Like Things like that right. are kind of an interesting um thing that we're seeing these days um mm -hmm. we're actually seeing a lot of like cbd cbd isolate things like that where it's like okay now we have to figure out a different way to test this just like a beautiful right yeah yeah i think that's a, another common misconception with lab testing is that purity assays are very different than like a general um abundant analyte assay that you would do on cannabis flower or something to be able to say that something is 95 plus percent or 99 plus percent um pure is is really challenging and it's something i i tell people that a lot of times shocks them at first is i say if you do 
quality control measurements and you're you're using you know different quality control samples when you're trying to get that tight you're going to see things that are like 105 percent 107 percent coming out, out of the machine and it's like you're dealing with different issues uncertainties related to preparation statistical variance all these different things that give you wonky numbers and so you have to do extra levels of qc and and method development to to be able to um you know really confidently say like we know there's somewhere between 99 and 100 percent you know um of this sample is this one molecule um so it doesn't get appreciated a lot and when you're talking about the the uhplc I imagine you're probably getting requests now from hemp producers to verify that things don't have THC in them, um, which would then require you to be able to see even lower concentrations of THC than even um, like, like the hemp level of 0.3%. Like a lot of these producers want you to be able to see way below that while also having in some of these distillates and even isolate products, you know, just massive amounts of another compound, which uh, for anyone that hasn't worked with chromatography and looked at chromatograms and everything, when you, if you bombard your column with, you know, so to back up a little bit and explain some of these terms, when you're when you're testing a sample and you're, um, you, you know, you do make a liquid and you do inject it into a machine and basically that liquid is going through something called a column, which is basically a tube um, that has stuff in it that as the liquid passes through that stuff, it um, allows the individual molecules to separate out. So when I say column, that's what I'm talking about. So if you put a sample, let's say you're trying to determine that there's no THC in a sample, but it's got 90% CBD in it, and you're trying to prep that sample in such a way that you're going to be able to ensure that you'll see any trace amounts of THC while also not injecting so much CBD onto the column that you end up with this huge monster peak that's showing up in the chromatogram that's just would be eating away everything else, <laughs> all the minor constituents that you're trying to measure in the first place. Uh, so it's a complicated balancing act. Yeah, you're definitely observing a very wide span of is it there or not. Right, yeah, yeah. And you may just have to have unique methods for if you're doing the trace versus the abundant. You can't just see everything with one method. Um, that's the way we've, we've started to lean that direction. So yeah. that's going to be interesting in just having method validation for all of that. Yeah. Um, so this touches into quality control, quality management, all of that. So when you're testing, and we've talked a little bit about it, but when you get a new infused product and you're trying to determine whether your results are accurate or not, what does that process look like? How do you develop confidence in your results for these infused products before you report them to a customer? There's a lot that kind of goes into this. Firstly, as a laboratory, we kind of take that sample and extract it into um, different solvents uh, using our different methods that we currently have in-house just to like, just to see it, mm -hmm. if that works. Um, what we're kind of looking for in general is that the sample actually dissolves all the way um, or is broken up enough where we are truly extracting all of the cannabinoids. And so then we also take those different extractions and compare what we would call recovery, uh, kind mm -hmm. of comparing to each other, not necessarily knowing what is truly 100% or not. Um, Just trying to find the best one. 
exactly. the highest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you, yeah, usually the best one um, is a combination of what is giving us the um, highest or near expected results, uh, as well as has um, the lowest RSD or relative standard deviation. So that would mean that it's um, from, you know, doing three different extractions from extraction to extraction, um, we are truly extracting um, the same amount of cannabinoids every time. Mm-hmm. Um, and once that, once we've determined that, then we try to use different laboratory control methods. Um, each laboratory is most likely using a method blank, which is just uh, the extraction done with nothing in it, just to make sure we're not getting any contamination or anything like that. And then a laboratory control sample, which is going to be something, some kind of sample that is prepared uh, just like any other sample, um, but has a known amount of analytes in it. So, mm-hmm. and then we're um, comparing those results to uh, an expected range. So normally that laboratory acceptance criteria is 70 to 130% uh, expected recovery. Um, and that uh, that's kind of a large range, especially when you're using these like very yeah. small amounts. Uh, but that's kind of where in testing, that's where that kind of sits. Um, each laboratory can decide to bring that in or expand that out depending on how their laboratory control sample is working. Uh, Mm -hmm. This kind of gets into a problem where when you have all of these different kinds of samples, how do you have a laboratory control sample that covers all of them or your own little individual laboratory control samples? And, um, you know, that's where all of us are kind of in a pickle because it's, it's just a big issue that each lab has to face and how how does each lab want to deal with that? Um, and it's kind of a balancing act also between like, does the lab want to prepare a sample that is going to cover all of these things? Um, are they going to use uh, some material that they already have in the lab so they're not spending so much money? But then how right. much are they going to take to like make these infused products? Or like, are you going to go out to the dispensary and buy products to then bring back to the lab? And then the question is, are those original test results that your lab may or may not have done, mm-hmm. are those are those legitimate? Can you actually use that as uh, your plus or minus uh, expected recovery? Right, yeah. Is that starting material actually um, accurate? And that gets down to you know, one of the big issues with quality management is the traceability of measurements and that ideally in a perfect world, you'd be able to trace measurements all the way back to some international, internationally recognized standard. Usually that's managed by like the metrological, um, was it the metrological society or the metrological institute, whatever that, that big group that basically defines like, what is a kilogram? What is, you know, all of these different types of measurements. And then from there you have organizations like NIST and ASTM and all these others that create and USP that create reference materials. Um, But right now in the cannabis industry, we're in a weird spot. We don't have good reference materials 
that are in Matrix for a lot of these things. I mean, we just, gosh, do you remember the days when labs were, the only reference materials we had were literally the, um, it was like the Emerald test, you know, just a liquid, you know, just cannabinoids in liquid that you just diluted, injected, yeah, dilute and shoot, dilute it, inject in the machine, and everyone prided themselves on their badges they got eh, year after year. And then, um, and then finally, there was the development of some like in like flower based uh, reference standards that were used as um, proficiency testing materials and everything. But um, gosh, when you start thinking about now, they, that? they're they're expanding. They're doing a lot more. They haven't gone into the infused product section. Right. Um, the most recent PT uh, PTs or proficiency tests. Um, the recent proficiency tests uh, had a few different options, and there was the flower one. There was um, there wasn't a concentrate one, but there was a CBD isolate. And oh, interesting. Uh, and there were, for both solvent, residual solvents and pesticides, there was also um, like a few different matrices that you could choose from to then do your proficiency test with. Yeah, and see kind of how you vary among matrices. Yeah. Maybe yeah. A quality control for infused products is very difficult. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's like you don't, <laughs> you hardly have a foundation to work upon. Um, and you're sort of working blindly um, and trying to piece things together. That's, um, you know, one thing I've thought might be an interesting idea. I don't know if it'll ever be something that happens in Oregon or not, but it'd be kind of nice if there was a like state funded reference lab that like their whole goal mission in life is to do a lot of this R and D and then outfit all of the labs with, you know, what they learned from that so that they could spend the time uh, to try to develop reference materials, try to figure out ideal methods for different matrices like that, and then just say, hey, here's what we've learned, share it with everybody to better the industry, make sure this data is, you know, very um, representative and comparable. Because one thing, one problem we have right now among all these testing labs is it's hard to compare data between all of the labs. It's not a validated data set because there's different labs doing different methods with different LQs and different recovery ranges and everything. Um, so it's hard to even understand exactly, you know, kind of what's going on. You have to really think super critically about all the data. And um, so I don't know, that's something that I'd maybe like to see eventually is at least, I don't know, maybe when the feds finally deschedule or, you know, change some regulatory frameworks to have some labs that are maybe university run something that's you know spending a lot of this time and energy um, to come up with answers to these questions and um, you know yeah develop reference materials and everything. So right now I don't think people realize like a, when you talk about laboratory control samples, like labs are having to make their own and um, it's time consuming and it's not typical of analytical work. Yeah, and it's also not practical. Um, or no. So no. It puts the labs at a disadvantage. Um, yeah. But to have some kind of um, laboratory that did method validation and reference standards and things like that, that would be so nice. I mean, it would be <laughs> like any other industry. Like, yeah, yeah. Industry and actually have 
legitimate resources. That would be right. fantastic. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe in like 10 years, I don't know, five years. Years. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I don't know, you know, with all this vaping crisis stuff that's going oh. on, it seems like there might be some, some money that might come down the pipeline eventually to try to, I don't know. I assume, I don't know, hopefully standards will be developed for products or more defined quality standards for manufacturing. And, and then maybe that will also end up helping um, the analytical side. Like I was looking on the FDA's website recently, there was a, to kind of bring this um, into other industries, like there's a recall right now on um, ranitidine, which is uh, Zantac basically. And um it's a recall that just hit at the end of September or so, and the FDA was putting out a notice saying that, um, by the way, we realized from doing our own testing that all the methods that the labs are using to test ranitidine for its primary constituents uses high temperature, which creates a byproduct. And so we don't actually know if the contaminant we thought was in this product is actually there or if it's an artifact of the testing method. And so the way they're trying to figure that out is, you know, the FDA has their labs and the CDC has their labs and everything, and they're you know, doing that work, and then they'll inform all of these other private testing labs what they learn and require particular methods to use for those certain products so that they don't have those issues um, in the future. But that's just like one like little practical example of why that kind of structure is important to have some other lab that has the resources that can do all that investigative work um, and, and figure out some of those, those critical issues. Um, are there particular types of infused products? I mean, we talked about some of these like salt, salty types of products, but are there other types of products that are sort of more challenging than others? I guess an easier way to phrase this, what are some of the easiest infused products to test and get pretty accurate results on? And then what are some of the hardest? Um, let's see. Well, I think probably some of the easiest uh, infused products are going to be some of those infused oils. So like the different tinctures and mm. drops and things like that, just because you can't go terribly wrong. You're putting concentrate into an oil and you're mixing it all up and it should, yeah. in theory, <laughs> disperse and yeah. yeah. Um, so I think those are probably the easiest to test um, as well as different things that you know could be mixed super well. Um, baked goods are very homogenous and very reproducible, which is kind of great, um, as well as hard candies. Um, mm -hmm. With those, you just have to break them up and then dissolve them. And they dissolve super easily because it's just sugar. So yeah. that's helpful. Um, but for some of the more difficult things, um, I would say gummies are mm. more difficult we see a lot of gummies here um i think that's just probably the most popular edible out there right now mm -hmm. uh, or is at least among them and it's just a lot of work um mm. not just overall it's easy because they will eventually dissolve in water but the time that it takes and mm -hmm the question of if it's going to be um, reproducible is a big question every time we do any extraction with gummies. Um, there are some gummies 
that we have been seeing that um, actually have like a filling inside. And so the outer shell is not, yeah. So the outer shell does not have any cannabinoids in it. And then inside there's like a filling that has cannabinoids in it. And when, when you're doing anything like this, um, if this were like a cookie sandwich or anything else, Mm -hmm. only part of it has cannabinoids, you still have to be so careful as a producer to like, to make sure that the filling and the mm-hmm. exterior part are the same every time. And so we saw a lot of issues where it wasn't. And so, you know, one increment, one sample, one gummy is, I don't know, five milligrams. And the next one is seven and the next right. one four. And it's just, it was very hard for us from a testing perspective because we want to help these people. We want them to succeed, but we also trust all of our methods and we trust our results. So mm-hmm. when they come back and say it's all our fault, which happens a lot, like oh yeah, yep, every day I deal with yep. people yep. telling us that it was our fault. Um, we go back and we say actually it wasn't. All of your weights are all over the place, and mm-hmm. you know, are you making sure that you know this inside the the middle is the same as the outside and all of this uh and after talking with them they were like oh we have not actually been saying uh, that so uh, yeah they're fixing that it's gonna be great <laughs> i want them to succeed so much because nobody else has like a cool idea like this so uh <laughs> it's been it's been hard um yeah and well, the other part of that is like, if in general, not just like a filled gummy, but um, any kind of gummy or anything with gelatin, like you need to make sure that you have mixed that thoroughly before it's set. Yeah, yeah. There are, there are so many anecdotal stories out there about somebody just having a small bite off of a gummy and having a great experience one day and having a different bite off of that same gummy, yeah. gummy and being high out of their minds the next day. And yeah. other than where they bit off the gummy, that was the only difference of their day. Yeah. That actually came up in a conversation that I had with somebody just last week, actually. They were um, talking about um, that they had a gummy and um, they were doing fine with it. And then they got to the end. And for some reason, at the end of the gummy, for whatever reason, it was hyper, hyper concentrated and um, had a very bad experience. And um, they got to try out some techniques for dealing with overwhelming cannabis experiences. Um, but, um, yeah, it just did not, did not go very well. And they were like, okay, maybe I want to stay away from the gummies. Um, cause it, yeah, that kind of, you don't want that kind of surprise <laughs> depending on what you're doing in the day and what your tolerance is and everything that can be, um, yeah. well, a really big problem. If this one's a first time cannabis user, they are never right. going to do it again where it could have been really helpful to them if they you know it's an older person and they need to work with arthritis or you know dealing with nausea or anything like that like having this terrible first time experience with a cannabis product puts our industry at risk as well as puts them at risk because they don't they've never had happen before and and it's not a fun experience in any way shape or form so i would I do it again. Yeah, 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 exactly. 
And on the the filling note is one thing that you've run into. I remember it was something I used to run into is that um, for some product manufacturers that are they're used to sometimes filling things by volume and not by mass. And so one of, and I wanted to make sure to bring this up in case anyone listening is dealing with this problem. One of the the big issues when you're trying to get the potency of something accurate, you've really got to make sure you're divvying out whatever that infused product is by mass and not by volume um, because you can be totally misled and really, I mean, it's, it's so easy to have something be, you know, have five milligrams in one little squirt and seven milligrams in another. I mean, that's, that's a tiny little variation um, that can lead to um, pretty big differences in potency. And also there are regulations on um, how consistent your potency has to be um, to what your label says, and then also batch to batch. Um, and um, so is that something that you've run into that you've, you've kind of had to teach some manufacturers to think in mass and not in volume? Yes, uh, pretty much almost every day. Uh, I talk to people <laughs> things because they want it to be reported. At, we report everything as milligram per gram and as per right. And a lot of people come in and they say, well, if I have, you know, this many milliliters, how much is that within that unit, for instance? And yeah. a lot of times it's really hard because I have to be like, all right, well, what's your density at room temperature? Like, I want it right. at this. And that's another big thing with, with volume is that if your facility is not temperature controlled and it fluctuates in any way, shape, or form, you are going to have yeah. a different different mass per volume every time. So yeah, yep. like math will never change. Volume always changes. Yep. Yeah, exactly. That's the big takeaway. It's volume it changes according to the environment. So it's it's not a reliable thing. No matter how much baking experience you might have and how consistent you think you can make your cookies or, or whatever, when you're trying to have a, a target molecule to be a certain potency in that product it just it changes the way you have to think about it um and so you mentioned um liquids and this ties into something else i wanted to make sure that we specifically talked about because um you and i bumped into each other at the cannabis science conference in portland and you had a um research poster there that you shared about um looking at some interesting activity going on with cannabinoids in acidic beverages, like in sodas and things like that. Um, so I wanted to to make sure to spend time getting into that. What um, what issues um, have you been running into with these acidic beverages, and and what have you learned from trying to study that? Well, I do have to say that this is still an experiment in process. Um, okay. But looking at these different acidic beverages, there's definitely something going on where the delta-9 THC concentration is decreasing over time. It's having some sort of interaction with the acid in the beverage. Um, mm. And so one big issue for from a laboratory perspective is um, consistency. If this is mm -hmm. degrading, and it's degrading relatively quickly, um, if this person were to make their batch of, let's say, lemonade, if they mm -hmm. made that um, and then they didn't have it tested, you know, that day or the next day, 
but had it tested a week later, that's going to be different than what they had originally mm. infused yeah. the with. And so all of their masks then gets off. And then they have a lot of questions for the laboratory. Um, and it just gets more and more interesting. Um, I'm still trying to figure out specifically what is going on, um, how the Delta 9 is degrading. Um, I have a mm -hmm. few theories that it might be, you know, we've seen some different studies on Delta 9 THC degrading from stomach acid into 11 mm -hmm. hydroxy Delta 9 THC. Um, so that might be um, one of the pathways, uh, but it might mm -hmm. also be leading to something that uh, I currently can't see on right. my cannabinoid list. Uh, my different method that I'm working with. So um, I am thinking about trying to do sort of an expanded method to see if I can see any other cannabinoids that are happening within our run mm -hmm. that we are eclipsed by other cannabinoids or are coming out at a spot where we're not looking for them. Right, right. Yeah. And so did you catch on to this by... I'm sure first you were getting feedback from producers saying, why are my beverages not coming out at the potency that I know that they should be? Um, yeah. But then but then did that spur just like, um, did you do some R&D with certain producers where you just test the same product over and over again over over time and see the changes? Yeah, um, I have a, a few producers that I work with to do some R&D work like that, um, just kind of a observation over time of what's happening to their product uh this mm -hmm. actually all came about because i wanted to test a few different extraction methods for beverages and we went and bought a couple drinks from the dispensary and you know we knew what um what each of those should have been around approximately um from either our lab testing it or other labs mm -hmm. testing it and uh on testing those with both the method that this lab uses and other methods, we were seeing that there was this difference between the mm -hmm. original final result and the new final results. And it was only happening in beverages that were below, you know, three and a half pH. So mm, okay. something's going on on the acidic front and, uh, I am still working on that. Unfortunately, we have been super slammed at the lab, so I have not had time to do a whole bunch of research. But when we slow down again, and when I don't have a bunch of audits about to happen, <laughs> I'm looking at that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right now we're in the middle of, well, beginning into harvest season and and everything. So I imagine you guys are super swamped. I can't even imagine what the demand on you is now with the hemp uh, stuff that's going on with so many hemp farms and then the way the hemp testing rules have now panned out they're basically the exact same as the testing rules for everything else um, for medical cannabis and adult use cannabis um, so yeah I can only imagine I know what what throughput was like back in the day when uh, when adult use cannabis went through and I have to imagine it's orders of magnitude different now uh, it certainly is the only benefit of the hemp producers having to still um, do the same regulations as cannabis is that they do have 
instead of a 15 pound flower batch limit, they have a 30 pound flower batch limit, which mm-hmm. is actually super great because a lot of these people have like thousands of pounds. And yeah. so from a laboratory's perspective, I don't want to test every 15 pounds. Like right. I would love to test every 50 to 100, but right. <laughs> at that point, unfortunately at that point, your representative sample is not representative. Yeah. And so that's, that's a big deal. Um, but we do have a lot of people who are uh, very excited about getting their hemp into OLCC recreational sales. And so they're doing a lot of, uh, we're working with a lot of people to get their stuff transferred into metric, which is mm-hmm. the tracking system here in Oregon. And then um, working with them on getting all of their batches tested appropriately. So there's been yeah. a lot of people asking, you know, it's kind of like back when uh, recreational cannabis started of what am I supposed to test for? Uh, <laughs> yep. so, uh, I've been doing a lot of education for our clients. Um, you know, of course, as a laboratory, you can't tell them like, you need to test it for this, but we can advise them to say, you know, here's what the rules suggest. And here's how you would go about doing that. Um, of course, this is your decision. You will tell us what you want us to test for and we'll mm-hmm. help you out in any way that we can. That's legal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so coming back around to um, these manufactured products, what would be some advice you would give to producers to try to minimize the variance on their end before they get products tested so that if there are discrepancies that come up, it'll be a little easier to hunt down what the culprit might be? One thing that's always super helpful, um, just from any kind of production standpoint, is to just test along the way. So you'd get your flour tested. And then if you were making that into some kind of crude, then you would have your crude tested. Uh, If you were making a butter from there or some kind of oil to then infuse your products with, get that tested. And all of these could either be full compliance tests where you're actually doing a representative sample per the Mm -hmm. state regulations, or you could just be doing an R&D test of of Mm -hmm. wondering, okay, I'm going to bring in you know, five grams and let's see where just the potency is because that's really where you're going. Um, You know, certain states are going to want you to have it tested at each stage uh, for the full suite of things. Uh, If you don't need to do that, then R&D testing is definitely more cost effective. Um, Yeah. And having it tested at each stage is going to help you understand your losses and your extraction efficiencies and things like that because a lot of people come in and say well i you know made this crude and it was at this and then now in my edible it's totally off and it's only 80 percent of what it should have been and Mm -hmm. so then it's a lot of walking through of like all right well where could you have you know, where are our points of loss? And so if you transferred it from three different containers into another three different containers, there's, yeah. gonna, there's always going to be stuff, stuff on the sides, stuff on your spatula, you know, uh, you might have some loss when you go and put it into the molds for whatever kind of product that you're doing or what have you. Um, that's definitely a big thing. But then for different producers, don't be afraid to ask questions of your lab. Uh, mm-hmm. You're paying them for a service and you should 
understand, you know, how your sample is going to be extracted. Is it homogenized mm -hmm. by the lab? Uh, do they extract the entire sample? Are there inconsistencies that they're seeing in the product that you hadn't noticed? Uh, from there, you can usually figure out where if your inconsistencies are in the laboratory processes mm -hmm. or inconsistencies are on your side in the production area. Right. So, and that, that gets into, sorry. That gets into <laughs> no, that's good. That gets into um, something I try to encourage people to think critically about are like uh, quality agreements with the labs and that you can develop a much more interesting relationship with a laboratory um, and and this is more common in other industries, and cannabis is kind of catching up to that. But in um, like dietary supplement industries, or even in in food manufacturing, you know, whatever third party lab that's your primary lab, um, you know, you can set up a quality agreement with them where you know you're working one on one to understand these methods. You even have the right to do some routine audits of that lab and how they're treating that sample and make sure they're sticking to you know, whatever was decided about how that sample will, will be treated. And and likewise, the, there then become certain expectations on the producer side that says, like, as long as we stick to our SOPs and we're manufacturing things this way, then we expect the lab to treat it this way. And then if there are discrepancies, you know, we talk through that. And um, moving more towards that cooperative relationship rather than uh, these results don't match, so you must have done something wrong and I'm going to go elsewhere. Um, I think that often causes more problems than anything, that lack of dialogue, because um, then the lab doesn't know that there's any issue, um, and who knows why that discrepancy might exist. Um, it can be a myriad of reasons, and you can just continue to get different results lab to lab to lab, especially if there's variants on the production side that you haven't captured. Um, and it also ties into another GMP point and it, this is all in my mind because I'm working with a lot of producers about um, GMP compliance these days, but uh, critical control points are a big piece in manufacturing in that you need to understand what points of your process are most likely to introduce error or hazards, contamination, et cetera. But anything that could affect your end potency should also be a critical control point that's evaluated and and managed. And so what you were discussing about testing at different points along the process, I think fits perfectly into that scheme. If any producers out there that are listening are thinking about critical control points, that needs to be worked into that, that process as well. Um, and it fits really nicely into what producers should already be thinking about in the grand scheme of things in terms of adopting good manufacturing practices and trying to ultimately prepare for FDA compliance, which, you know, it's going to come eventually and become an issue. Yes, yes it is. Uh, and even just having, if each producer had um, a really documented procedure that was truly step-by-step, -step, then yeah. just auditing how each person in their facility is doing each of these steps uh, and you have that documented, then you know where that variation might come from as well. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so... Um... I th it seems like over time, more and more manufacturers are getting more and more dialed in to all of this stuff. Um, it's just a bit of a learning curve with every new product that comes <laughs> that comes around. Um, things always seem, no matter how complicated they seem, it's relatively simple compared to the way 
that you end up learning that you have to do things later. Like you have a conception of how it should go and it just almost never goes that way. It never goes smoothly. Um, that's just the way it is. <laughs> There's always unforeseen and uncontrollable variables that uh, yeah, we don't. Even just, you know, a shout out to everybody listening. If you are, if you have a new product that you're testing, I would say, go and talk to your lab and say, Hey, I've got this new thing coming out. Can we test it? And yeah. not, not compliantly test it, but just like, let's see if we can spot any variants before I even go and get it tested. Exactly. Regulations because having that relationship and having that step-by-step process with the lab is going to help everybody in the long run. Literally everyone yeah. will be so much happier. Um, yep. It's going to cost you a little bit more, but it's going to be worth it in the long run because you'll actually be able to say that, you know, you trust your lab and your product is homogenous and can provide you reproducible results. Then you don't have to worry about failing the state mandated testing and you could just go from there. And it's, it's a great, great spot to be. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Trying to stay ahead of the curve and be more responsive rather than reactive in, in things that are going on is always a, a good plan, I think, um, for sure. And let's say, as you and I both know, we both dealt with this scenario a lot of times, um, a producer, they feel like they've controlled all this variance really well. They've worked with you. They, uh, get something tested, the results come back and they're very different than what they expected. Um, what's your recommendation for how that conversation gets started? Um, as far as trying to troubleshoot that, um, because I mean, the most common response that I think you and I are familiar with is one of frustration and irritation towards the lab. And that's not always the most productive way to try to, <laughs> to try to get to an answer. Yeah. I would say, first of all, don't just straight up blame the lab. It might not be the lab's fault or it might be the lab's fault. Let's find out. Right. Oh, Suspend judgment. <laughs> don't blame the lab right away. Uh, but I would definitely suggest that you, I mean, having this good relationship with the lab and being able to go in and talk to them without being frustrated, without, you know, without yelling, without straight up pointing fingers. You know, I've had that happen a lot at every lab I've worked at. Um, and that's not a productive way to start a conversation in at all. Um, so by going in there and saying, hey, I got these results. I just had some questions. I expected it to come out more like this. You know, can we talk through this? You know, let's figure out where these differences are. I actually rather recently had somebody come in and do that. And we found that, uh, so he had had two different things tested. It was kind of like a, um, a honey mixture. And mm, okay. um, he had done one and let it sit and then submitted another one that he had like made stirred took a sample and brought in and so he assumed that they would be homogenous and these these two results were vastly different from each other and i mean just sitting down and looking at it it's like okay the products look the same 
However, these results are so very, very different. And so even just passing through the process with him was like, okay, I think we've found that if you are to let it sit, your cannabinoids are all going to fall to the bottom of your solution. And if you stir it up really well, then it's all homogenized appropriately at the time. So working with him that way, he was able to then work on how to emulsify his product better so it would stay in solution and not drop out of solution. And we were so very happy to like work with him and consult on how he could better his product. And uh, now he's successfully selling it all all across the Oregon. So nice. And do you think well, one thing that's that's been in my mind regarding infused product potency numbers? How big of an issue do you think it is that rather than figuring out what the problem is, producers just um, put in an overage into their product to just get the results to come out the way they want rather than to try to figure out how to get them accurate. How prevalent do you think that is? You think that's very prevalent or not so much? Basically what I'm getting. It's become a less prevalent recently. Um, You know, a couple years ago, it was happening all the time. But I think part of that was because laboratories were trying every method they could think of to try and mm-hmm. yeah. track and analyze this product. Uh, and now that the methods are a little bit more stable and people have figured them out and validated each of their methods, then we're seeing a lot more consistency. And so if it is off a little bit, you know, I would expect there to be, you know, plus or minus 10% efficiency. Mm, okay. Um for each infused product, but even just seeing that, that's not, uh, from a laboratory perspective, that's super small. Yeah, yeah. With an infused product. So, like, if, for instance, you know, some of, some of the gummies that we see are about, like, a milligram per gram, so if that's mm-hmm. minus 10%, that's 0.9 to 0.1, that's very, <laughs> yeah. very small. Yeah, it's very tight. Uh, you know, sometimes that that makes the difference, and that can make or break production. Um, but mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of things that we are seeing now is because uh, you know, the state says you can have um, you know, this this many milligrams per serving, and then this many milligrams per package, and you can say how many units are in a package. But then that there's like a you're allowed to have a plus 10% overage. So in Oregon, Mm -hmm. the max package milligram per unit of THC is 50, but people can technically go to 55 and be within Mm -hmm. illegal. Right. So now people are dosing their product to 55 and not 50. And now Uh... the margin of error and the accuracy has well, I guess the margin of error has gone down. The accuracy has in- increased. Now people are like just over or just under. And it's mm-hmm. from a laboratory perspective where the state has actually asked us to kind of regulate that and do and say if this product fails or not. Mm-hmm. Um, that puts us in a bind because it's it's right there where it's mm-hmm. 
all we can think is, why are you formulating to 55 when you could be formulating to 50? (laughs) Give yourself a little cushion, but, you know, people want to thank for the book, so. That was, that was, that's exactly what I was getting to is, you know, is there an issue where a lot of the edibles that are on the shelf are actually a little more potent than, than the labels are indicating? Probably. Um, Probably. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, you know, the state, all of the state regulate regulatory bodies are totally overwhelmed with cannabis. A lot of these states decided to just pawn it off on the liquor control commissions of each of the states who are already too busy. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And so, um, you know, they don't have as much time to be able to go to dispensaries and pull some products off the shelf, test them, see if they match their, um, see if they match their cannabinoid levels and that they are free of pesticides and residual solvents and things like that. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the future, uh, especially with, each state putting more pressure to regulate this industry. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be interesting with um, federal decriminalization and legalization to see how the entire country wants to deal with it. So, yeah, yeah. I'm hoping that we can all, you know, kind of come together and come to a consensus mm-hmm. um, for doing those kinds of things. But it's, I mean, from what we saw with California, when California went legal, they pulled different state uh, regulations from each of mm-hmm. the states that were already legal that were the strictest and made it yeah. even stricter. And so if each state keeps doing that, it's going to be harder and harder for both laboratories to operate and processors, producers, growers to operate. Yeah, yeah. As we try to constrict <laughs> the regulations on each of these state industries, it's uh, it's making it more and more difficult to uh, have a livelihood. Um, right. When all we're trying to do is have um, responsible products and um, people safely and knowledgeably consuming this. Product. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's well put. Something that. Um... I talked about on another interview, um, actually with a dispensary owner, as we were discussing that um, people that, in sort of the cannabis tourism has become a, a big thing. People will go to legal states and try out, you know, different products they get from the dispensaries, and people will travel to Colorado and Washington, Oregon, California, um, all over Nevada, and one thing that folks didn't realize initially that's now starting to become well known is that. Um, edibles in dispensaries in different states are very different state to state because of things like like Oregon actually has pretty decent potency I think pretty decent potency limits on edibles as far as um, you know if you eat too much of of an edible that you get in a dispensary yeah it may be uncomfortable but you're not going to get dosed with a thousand milligrams of THC by accident whereas if you go to Colorado or other places um that maybe don't have those, those types of limitations, um, it can be, it can be very different. So I think that's, um, what you're talking about of coming together and trying to figure out how to handle these types of products, I think is important on multiple levels, um, to provide some consistency. Cause I mean, it's hard for consumers to keep track of all of these different, 
nuances and and you know to some extent we can't really expect people to totally follow all these regulatory differences and quality differences between products in different states and there does need to be some higher level consistency um and it and it probably would help keep people safer and just knowing that no matter where they go things are going to be relatively the same uh quality wise but yeah, and I think it's gonna it's going to have to start at the state level for sure because I looking at federal legalization and decriminalization it's probably not going to happen for a little bit. Um yeah. So it's going to be up to the states to really bring it back all together and we're definitely not there yet, but as more and more states legalize, I think uh I think we'll be coming together to to do a lot more of that work. Yeah, it'd be nice to see some like interstate agencies that um, helped bridge some communication between um, all of these different legal states to try to come up with, uh, I don't know, try to learn what each state has learned from the different ways they've done things and try to discuss whether there is some universal regulatory structure to handle cannabis that would be ideal, especially like... I mean, I don't know, it's almost like a PR thing, but Oregon, you know, passed that legislation to allow interstate commerce between Washington and California. Granted, I don't know practically when that'll ever happen, um, but they passed the law. <laughs> um, but, you know, it would be nice to to see that sort of interstate cooperation, um, which would then make interstate commerce much more easy to... Um, to handle from a regulatory perspective and to prove to federal agencies that it can be managed in some sort of consistent way so that it could be allowed. Um, but I don't know. And until things kind of sync up a little bit, I, I don't, I don't see any of that happening anytime soon, but maybe I'll be proved wrong. Yeah. I think uh, it's going to be one of those situations where if we, if we jump too fast into it, it's going to be a total disaster. But yeah. If, if we take our time and we figure out actually a truly good way to be able to uh, interact state to state as well as uh, a interstate uh, tracking system, I think mm, yeah. as of, I believe, next year, California will also be on metrics. So that would put all, all three states, Washington, Oregon, and California on metrics. That could mm. be super helpful. Uh, yeah. We would just need to work on some of the functionality of metrics to get those interstate transfers. Yeah. Yeah. So there's hope yet. <laughs> it's like a hot minute, but it, we'll get there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and this ties into some of the, the last questions I wanted to ask you, um, you know, from where you sit now, what do you hope to see from the future of the cannabis industry and as well as the future of lab testing too, you can go multiple directions with it, but um, what do you hope to see from the future? Well, as, as we've touched on previously, I would absolutely love to see standardization of testing requirements as well mm -hmm. as methodologies. I would love to be able to work with other laboratories to uh, come together and like figure out what, what is the best method um, that we could implement across laboratories, either within the state or within the country to then be testing, you know, 
flower concentrate edibles. Edibles are going to be a fun project, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And of course, with we couldn't do this without state or federal legalization. Um, mm -hmm. There are some pros and cons to both of those, but in the long run, I think that's where we're heading. Uh, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I uh, would definitely like to see a lot more um, standardization across everything, I think, though, because it's going gonna, it's gonna to give everybody um, kind of uh, a leg up because now producers, laboratories, and consumers will all be seeing the same thing. Whether yeah. you go to this lab or that lab or are coming from that producer or that edible maker, you should be seeing consistency. So um, it might be kind of an unpopular opinion, but I'd love to get all the labs together and chat with them about this. Yeah. Well, and it would, that kind of, you know, having a standardized foundation to build data from, it makes the, uh, any poor performing labs stand out way more because you basically have this established mean, this established average of how labs should be functioning. And if you see someone that, for instance, like with pesticide testing, that is never failing for particular compounds, whereas other labs are seeing, you know, uh, 8% failure rate for, you know, whatever, um, that stuff stands out. And then it makes it easier to investigate why that might happen. Is it you know, some sort of fraudulent activity that's happening, or is it just um, some issue with their method that, you know, needs to be developed and maybe they need to be audited, you know, and checked in on to make sure, you know, everything's going well. Um, whereas now it's, I don't know, it's still kind of a wild frontier you know, when it comes to all of that. You can, you can see discrepancies in data sets, but yeah, you don't know why those discrepancies exist or what's normal and what's not. So... Um, yeah, I'd love to see that too. And I'd love to see more cooperation between all labs. There's so much demand for testing and need that I don't think that any lab has to worry about losing their like market share or something. You know, like there's there's not enough labs to handle the industry as is. Correct. So I I don't I don't see there being a, a huge problem with um coming together and trying to share and learn from one another to um, develop a, a better industry and to instill better confidence in consumers about labs. Because uh, there's a lot of skepticism that people have about lab testing in general um, that um, can be challenging to um, kind of settle down and, and get people to, to feel confident with their labs again. And some of that stems from the shadiness that happened back in the old um, medical days in Oregon um, where anybody could be a lab and you didn't know what they were doing in the back or, you know, there's dry labbing that's happening, people making up results, making PDFs without doing tests. And so yeah, makes it makes sense why there's a lot of skepticism of labs. Um, but things have changed so much since then. Um, and, and this actually ties into a question I meant to ask earlier and I forgot and it just popped up in my head. Um, what are some common misconceptions that you run into about lab testing? Um, you pick like the top, <laughs> top two or three, uh, that you frequently encounter. There, there's a lot of different misconceptions. Um, yeah. 
I think one of the first ones, which I always ask when I like give a tour of the lab and stuff is I ask them what, what they think we actually, like, how, how do you think we test the product? Mm, that's how good. Yeah. Oh, that there are instruments in the back. Yeah. How do you think we test the product? And for a long time, um, a lot of people that I talked to, they were like, oh, cool. You work at the lab. Does that mean that you just get to smoke weed all day? <laughs> my response to that is if I smoked weed all day I would be very unproductive and I would probably take a lot of naps so no, I do every day you would not get your results very fast oh uh, no you would not um, I, I think a lot of people don't realize actually how expensive it is to be a lab mm. as well um, yeah. some of those instruments cost more than my house like, yeah. yeah it's insane they're very expensive equipment, and they're also very finicky. Uh, another thing that I've also noticed with this industry is that people want their results, and they want them now. Um, yeah. With other industries, other agricultural testing facilities, it takes weeks to get, get results back. And so the fact that cannabis producers and growers and people in the industry think that they deserve their results back within three days is crazy i don't yeah. even know how to describe how i feel about that but it's just crazy. <laughs> um, yeah and you know we're we're working really hard to get you your results as fast as we possibly can but we also want to make sure that they are accurate and that we feel comfortable putting those out in the world they, it has our name on it has our signature on it it says that i validated that and said that that was good and those mm -hmm. are the results that like we yeah. have are putting out there and then to have people frustrated that we can't get stuff back the next day <laughs> is uh it's it's a little upsetting <laughs> yeah well i think it's it's important for people to realize that when there's that pressure to turn around results so fast the compromise is quality that you know it's just impossible to do everything that you need to do to qualify results as being accurate and precise um, in a day, I mean, it can be done if your throughput is very low and you only have like a few samples that you need to test, then sure. You might be able to get that done in a day, but that's not what labs are dealing with. Labs have thousands of clients and they're dealing with hundreds of samples at a time. And so it's just very, even with redundant machines and everything, it still doesn't make a lot of sense to expect results that fast. And I know, like dietary supplement testing labs that, um, you know, they prepare their clients for a month turnaround time. Yeah. And, so, and so producers have to just build that into their production systems that, okay, we stagger everything. And so that delay on test results is not going to hold us up because our whole, all of our operations are staggered in such a way that that's fine. It just sits in outgoing quarantine until those results come in and then they move through and we don't think about it. Um, but the cannabis industry, there's some producers that have caught on to that and seem to be trying to mimic that type of, um, operational structure, but a lot are still, um, and granted there's a lot of demand on them to produce more product too. So, um, you know, a lot of them feel like they don't have that month to spare, right. um, to, to get results. And, and that's another thing I would encourage people listening, if you are a producer, to talk to your lab about is how to make testing not the bottleneck for your operations. There are ways 
to coordinate what your business is doing so that the lab testing and waiting for results is not your bottleneck. And in that, you know, it could take the lab two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, and it would make no difference to you. And it just, it, you just have to build that perspective and awareness into the way you're designing your, your business. Um, and, and there can be a lot of benefits to that. And then when results do come back really fast, it's a nice treat. <laughs> rather than and then as we all expand the different assays that we're going to be able to test for such as adding heavy metals or uh or terpenes or even potentially you know with this whole vaping thing doing vitamin e analysis and mm -hmm. looking for vitamin e acetate you know those turnaround times are going to extend and the industry is just going to have to be in flux with it i don't there's no other i mean especially if we have to start doing micro testing as well that's yeah. that's several days no matter what like i right. can't do a 24-hour turnaround time if i tried right you have to let things incubate salmonella is at least 48 hours yeah so. Yeah, there's no control over that. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Oregon eventually brings on metals testing at some point down the road. And um, particularly because like in California, they're seeing metal leaching from vape cartridges. Uh, yeah. So basically, when once the extract goes into the cartridge, you've got metals that are leaching out of the cartridge into the extract. And um, as some of that gets more well known, because right now in Oregon, they haven't been, you know, the extract gets tested usually before it's going into the pins. Um, so there's not, and metals testing isn't required in Oregon. So there's no data on that. But now there is in states like California and I think Nevada as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wouldn't be surprised if we see that. And so, I, yeah, I think it's it's really important for producers to not to expect turnaround times to get better or for costs to come down any lower. Something that... Um, uh, always blew my mind as well when I was um, doing commercial lab testing was the expectation that, you know, you should be able to get potency, uh, water activity, moisture content, pesticides, all for, you know, less than $200 and, um, or $300 even. And, you know, in most other industries, that type of testing would cost anywhere from like 600 to a thousand dollars. And so, <laughs> It's just, uh, we just have to be careful what our expectations are and the consequence that our expectations are having on on the industry. Because like I said, you put that pressure on the labs, then you're really just degrading the quality of the lab data that's coming out. So you're just making it more and more likely that a lab is going to have to cut corners or uh, sacrifice quality in some way in order to meet that demand, um, especially when labs start competing against one another and start to you know, everyone's trying to go a little bit faster and be a little bit cheaper than everyone else. Um, it's, it's a, it's a tricky thing. So it's sort of like, be careful what you wish for kind of situation. You get what you pay for. is really what it is. Yeah, it is. If you want fast, it means you're not going to get quality. And we actually, as a laboratory, we decided to stop doing expedited samples because it was, it was putting our quality at risk. And yeah. so now, now we just strive to do um, do things in a quality fashion as quickly as possible so that our clients are still getting it in a three to five day window. But um, that could be hard when if if anything breaks. Right. Yeah. If anything goes wrong. And we know that lab instruments just love to perform perfectly all the time. Oh, heavens. <laughs> <laughs> 
Like right now, I have two instruments down. Thankfully, we have backups for them. Yeah. But if those backups sort of go down, there's I, we have to call clients and say, hey, we're sorry, we're we're trying to get these back online. However, yeah, it's gonna be a little bit, and it's it all comes back to you know turnaround time expectation as well as um, if you're truly only gonna pay your lab two hundred or three hundred dollars for a full compliance test, then there is no there's no extra margin for the lab to pay their staff. Yeah their bills to keep everything running like there's no extra there at all yeah Yeah, and like you just said i mean some of these instruments are yeah anywhere from a hundred to uh five hundred thousand dollars or more um for just one instrument much less having redundancies and and then trying to find qualified staff and all of that it it adds up a lot i i don't know sometimes i think that people might have a perception that because labs look fancy and interesting that it must have a lot of money and really it's a it's a gamble to run a lab because you're kind of just saying like we're gonna have to you know hold on tight and hope that we make it on the other side when uh the value proposition is is better and you know getting paid more what what you really deserve for the work you're doing and to be able to make all those those costs make it and that's why we've seen a lot of labs not make it i mean over the course of past four or five years the there are a lot of the the major labs have have stuck in there, but there's been a lot of different labs that have come and gone by now that have tried to jump in and realize that it's a lot harder to make money than they thought, and it's really expensive to do, and maybe not always worth the the effort. Um, so this all goes to uh, the whole point of all of this is basically um, have mercy on your lab staff that you work with, um, yell at them a little less, be a little nicer. <laughs> <laughs> they, they are people too. Don't forget that. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to make sure everything goes right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. They want you to succeed. They're not against you. Well, um, in the last little bit of time we have here, I appreciate you being willing to give me so much of your time. We've been going for almost an hour and a half now. Um, I want to open it up for the next couple of minutes. If there's anything that we haven't covered that you want to share, or if you just want to tell folks how to learn more about the work you're doing or the nonprofit that you're working with, any of that, um, anything that you want to share the next couple of minutes are yours. Ooh, goody. All right. Well, (laughs) um, (laughs) I think it's the, I would want to say that the best thing that people can do no matter where they are or what they're doing, whether they're growing, they're producing, they're just consuming is, or if they're part of a lab, that's, this counts for you too, um, is yep. be willing to learn more about what's going on in your industry, as well as like, what are you consuming? And mm-hmm. part of that is going to be, um, you know, knowing your lab staff and um, talking with them about what they do on a daily basis and getting to know how they're interacting with your product in the lab, but then also, um, you know, there are these different groups all around the country that are trying to make an impact uh, on the communities that are there um, with both education and just community events. Uh, this is all part of normalization of campus, mm-hmm. and we all have to work together on that. Uh, so education is 
to me the top priority there because if we don't know what we're talking about or don't know what we're consuming, uh, that puts us in a really dangerous position and doesn't give us the right tools to be able to uh, express what we want to have in this industry uh, and also doesn't allow us to uh, interact with those people who have no idea what this industry is about. And yeah, I think yeah. that's a really big part of it because even just going and even though I'm terrified to like go and talk to regulators, <laughs> even though they're also people too, but right. you know, they have a, a lot more power politically uh, than I do as just the quality assurance officer of a laboratory. Um, but a lot of them don't know about this industry. They don't know what we're doing they don't see that it's part of our daily lives. Um, mm -hmm. And so just trying to get us all to a point where we understand what this plant can do. And that's going to be part of like federal legalization is going to be research and things like that. Uh, it's also probably unfortunately going to be like big corporations coming in and growing. Mm -hmm. But Part of that's also going to be as long as we're educated and we can understand that, you know, this local producer is producing things in a clean, green way and their cannabis is, uh, you know, makes me feel good when, you know, looking at this other major corporation, they're just growing weed to grow weed so that, like, they mm -hmm. can make another dollar, then that's uh if we're not educated about where we're getting it what it is things like that then it just puts this entire industry at risk yeah but, yeah um i would say if you are interested in getting involved in your local community there's totally places everywhere to do that um oregon has like <laughs> at least like six <laughs> different organizations across the state that i can think of uh, yeah and they meet all over the state. Uh, you know, ORCA, uh, the Oregon Retailers of Cannabis Association, I think. Um, I, think I think that's right, yeah. They're super great, and they try to get out all over um, Oregon. So, you know, if you're in Oregon, they're a great group to follow. If you're in Central Oregon, Cascade Cannabis Association is here for you. That's the group that I'm involved in. Um, and yeah, and if you don't have something nearby you, you could always start something. Yeah. I mean, even just you and your friends. Start yep. talking about it, start looking at all these different research articles and things coming out about all these minor cannabinoids and everything about the vape issue and, you know, what's Europe doing? They're doing a lot right. of about regulations and yep. you know, some of them are a-okay with CBD. And some of them are like, no, it came from cannabis, which hemp is technically part of cannabis. Yep. So they see it all as cannabis and they won't have any of it. It's quite fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. No, it definitely is. Um, it's something I've been trying to wrap my head around. And like um, in Europe, the places that, that deal with hemp, their, their required THC levels are actually a little lower, uh, like 0.2 rather than 0.3. Yeah. Um, all sorts of little differences and, and that number, man, that, um, 
that number is huge as far as what it dictates that you can do and what genetics you have to source and a lot of other things. Um, it's very, very interesting to watch how it's all, all panning out um, and what we can learn from it. And yeah, if anyone listening is in Southern Oregon, um, an organization that I'm working with trying to get going is uh, the Oregon Cannabis Education Resource Center. Um, and it's a new organization, but I'm trying to help with a lot of the education work that they're wanting to do. So we're trying to get events and things together and um, um, yeah, be on the, the lookout for that. You can learn more about it at ocerc.org. Um, but we should have some seminars and some mixers and things coming up in 2020. It's kind of going to be our first push to actually um, get out of the planning stages and actually into the, the doing stages. <laughs> so well, yeah. we'll see how, see how that goes. Everybody get out there and learn something. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's something I've, I've said before, but um, one of the things I really hope about with the podcast is just, I hope that we inspire more conversation and better conversations. And if that happens, then this is a big win. I think just if someone hears our conversation we're having now, and then they go and are talking to their friends and colleagues and everything. And, and those conversations are, are just happening and people are thinking critically, then, uh, then we're moving in a good direction. So. Indeed. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ellen, for being willing to talk with me and, and go through all of this. If, um, as you learn more about some of the work you're doing, as particularly this, the acidic beverage thing, as you tease out more about that, let me know. It'd be cool to do a short little drop-in and learn um, what wisdom you glean from some of those experiments. And if you have any advice to producers, once you tease some of that stuff out, that'll be pretty interesting to follow up on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'd love to bring all that knowledge back, back to this place. Um, cool. Yeah, we should have... My plan is to have a white paper by a year from now so, nice yeah. good deal yeah well when that's done we'll follow up and cover it and make sure people are aware of, of what's in there and yeah in general stay in touch let me know what's going on and i uh, look forward to seeing all the interesting work you do in the future well thanks jason have a wonderful day yeah you too thanks all right everybody if you want to learn more about cannabis you can check out the curious about cannabis book it's available on amazon and other online retailers and if you want to learn more about the podcast you can go to cacpodcast.com or follow us on social media on facebook instagram twitter or youtube thanks so much for listening and i'll talk to you again soon thanks and take it easy if you want to learn more about cannabis you can check out the curious about cannabis book available now on Amazon.com and other online book retailers. The Curious About Cannabis podcast is presented by Natural Learning Enterprises, a science education company dedicated to the enhancement of public scientific literacy through education about the natural world. Curious About Cannabis is just one of several learning initiatives produced by Natural Learning Enterprises. To learn more, go to www.naturallearningenterprises.com or connect with NLE on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.